Venice, city of paintings and islands and beloved of writers. It's one of the greatest cities of the world, but like many tourist cities, it has its challenges. From time to time, we hear that it's doomed, but people have been saying that for a long time. There's still a lot of life there, and Rita Ehrlich spoke to someone who knows more than many. She talks with Robert Veal of Limelight Arts Travel, who takes tours to Venice and who so loves the city that he's bought an apartment there. I'm talking to Robert Veal. Robert Veal loves Venice and he takes tours to Venice through Limelight Arts Travel. So my question, my first question, Robert, is what is it about Venice that so appeals to you? Hello, Rita. Good question um, and a fundamental question you should always ask about anybody uh, and their travel experiences. Um, it's an overused word in travel, generally unique, um, and but it really does apply to Venice quite literally. It is a unique city in so many ways. It's a unique setting on a lagoon on a set of sandbanks. It has a unique history, um, unlike all of the, the other cities or most of the other cities in Italy. It doesn't have ancient Roman foundations. It's unique in Europe in the way that it doesn't look to central or mainland Europe for its inspiration for so many centuries. It looks instead to the east. Uh, it's unique, of course, in its art and architecture, and it's unique in its beauty. This is something that's universally acknowledged. Um, it is innovative in so many ways as well uh, in history, not just in the arts, but in uh, in the world of business and trade and manufacturing and things like that. And it's food. It, it occurs to me, the obvious has just occurred to me, it is the most improbable setting for a city. Absolutely. But that's its advantage because it was a trading city and that was what gave it its power and its wealth. Absolutely. Um, I try very often when I'm with a group of people on the first or the second day of the tour to take them to one of the outer lying islands, which is little more than a sandbank, really. I mean, the Venice is actually, we could call them sandbanks rather than islands in the lagoon. And I ask people to think about what this must have been like in the seventh or eighth century when Venice was founded. And I sort of, I gesture dramatically to the mainland to Italy. And I say that was chaos. That was barbarians. That was Goths. That was Lombards fighting and killing one another. This was the very end of civilization, the very end of the Byzantine Empire. And you're right, it was a trading post that was in the boondocks of Byzantium, um, if you like. Um, and so it's, it's a totally improbable setting for a city. And no river crossing, no major pre-existing trade route that goes through there, nothing whatsoever to recommend it. No, no water, a terrible place. Humid in the summer, freezing in the winter. Except that was what gave it its safety, I suppose. Nobody else wanted to be there. Absolutely. There are all sorts of stories. Nobody wanted to be there. And when people did try um, to take over the city, they failed. Uh, and the Venetians, you know, kept a secure uh, lagoon stronghold for such a long time, they didn't have to worry uh, about invasion. They weren't interested in land acquisition. They were interested in trade. So people didn't try to take over the sandbanks. There was nothing in it for them. So Venice, uh, you know, curiously secure in that way. Now, I was first in Venice many, many years ago. 
And I was there in winter. I spent a month in Venice in winter. And winter was, at that time, there were no tourists at all. And it snowed while I was there. And I had a very, very special sense of the city because there were no tourists around. And people were going about their business. It was, and I was aware how, in a funny way, although Venice looked outwards, how enclosed it was, because its dialect is quite different from Italian. Absolutely. Now, firstly, I'd say you're a true romantic traveling uh, in the wintertime, and uh, you're in the line. There's a great tradition of writers, people like Joseph Brodsky, who wrote a wonderful sort of uh, prose poetry praise of Venice in the winter called uh, Watermark. But, you know, it's interesting what you say about Venice being outward-looking but also very self-contained. In Venetian dialect, uh, there's a saying which refers to the bridge, the railway bridge, which was only built in the 1840s. Uh, And the saying is, if it wasn't for that bridge, the world would be an island. In other words, Venice, <laughs> one, one wouldn't go outside of, um, of Venice. One, one could live one's life within the confines um, of the city quite happily. And yes, it is I- ironic, isn't it? There's a very strong dialect and a very strong local identity that, that's not even a regional or a provincial dialect. You know, people who, who speak the Veneto dialect uh, can spot um, instantly a Venetian because of the different words and the different expressions that, that they have. So on the one hand, yes, it, it was a city which encountered the world and encouraged people from all over the world to come to the city and do business there. But it's also a very sort of enclosed and uniquely and easily identifiable to other Italians as as a singular place. Now, the problem for Venice these days, as everyone keeps saying, is the number of tourists. And Venice is one of those cities, and I think Florence is the same, that's been distorted by tourism. Absolutely. I mean, it's funny in a way, but I mean, Venice in many ways was the city that invented uh, mass tourism back in the 18th century with the carnival uh, and the grand tour. You know, on the, on the grand tour, European aristocrats were supposed to be coming to Italy to discover the ancient Roman and uh, to a lesser extent, the ancient Greek world. Um, and somehow they all managed to spend a lot of time in Venice, which was neither ancient Greek nor, 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 nor Roman. Uh, but and the Venice. Such fun. Uh, absolutely. Such absolutely, especially for a young man um, away uh, from his uh, family. And so uh, Venice has uh, long been able to handle tourists and it's used to tourists. But you're absolutely right. In recent years, it's exploded and and got out of control. Fortunately, um, there are ways, and it's strange in Venice because it's remarkably easy to escape the hordes. And I guess it's the 80-20 rule. 80% of people go to 20% of places. People are often there for a weekend, for a couple of days. I think the average day in Venice is very short, and they want to see all of the famous things. Well, there are many, many other things in the city, and indeed, if you want to see the unique way in which everyday life is lived, just getting fruit and vegetables and getting things delivered or whatever, trying to post a letter, that can all be seen in areas um, well outside the area of San Marco, the district of San Marco, which is where the, you know, the monumental 
uh, centre of the city, which is where everybody crowds. Um, one great tip, apart from travelling in the wintertime, which you've already mentioned, um, is to avoid the weekends. It's uh, Venice is one of those destinations where people come um, for a weekend. Arriving hordes arrive uh, on Friday nights and they stay Saturday nights, and then you can see them beginning to um, disappear on, on on a Sunday afternoon. So you can plan to be out of those um, highly trafficked areas at that time. You'll have a much better experience. But uh, all sorts of places around the city with beautiful art, fabulous food, um, you know, quiet canals, endlessly beautiful, where you'll see near a tourist in sight. I have very fond memories of the fruit and vegetable market there. There, there are actually there are a number of them you know apart from the Rialto markets which again this is one of those Venetian improbabilities that we referred to earlier Venice has some of the freshest vegetables in Italy in any major Italian city thanks to the Lagoon Islands where beautiful artichokes and radicchio and and all sorts of things um, are still are still grown and so you go to those markets and they they very carefully mark the provenance uh, of of the produce there and you can see um, you know from which island in the lagoon uh, these vegetables come from so you know a combination of that and of course the fresh seafood makes those markets a glory but um, you know in some of the more residential districts of the city, there are also some excellent um, fruit and vegetable markets, some of which are actually floating on boats. You know, they're on barges and uh, you buy off the boat, um, so to speak, even though you're buying vegetables, not not, not fish. Yes, that's right. right. And in fact, a a largely vegetable and and fish diet is a very healthy one. I'm not sure if the Venetians live healthier lives than other Italians. (laughs) It's a a very... it's a diet that goes two ways, I would say. Yes, absolutely. You know, if you want to have a typical Venetian meal, it's un- unquestionably seafood and vegetable-based. You know, you don't come to Venice for, for pasta uh, in particular. But Venice, of course, was ruled um, by the Austrians um, from, uh, from or for most of the 19th century. And, and, and they seem to have found in the Venetians a love of things sweet. And perhaps that contact with sweet food had already come from the East, from, you know, um, Middle Eastern um, sweet, which if you think about it is very sugar rich uh, and things like that. But, um, you know, Viennese style pastries are still to be found in, in the best uh, cafes and patisseries of Venice. And they're, they're wicked. They're wicked. It's definitely not a Mediterranean diet there. <laughs> That's right. And I think there's a rule where there were Austrians, there will be cake. Absolutely. And lots of it. I mean, the Venetians, um, they, they do them unlike what you see in Vienna. You know, the Venetians have, you know, pleasingly modest sized cakes. They, they, you know, they're called, they're called beignet, little, little uh, cakes or a, a pastina. But one, of course, can have several of those in a sitting if you want. I saw changing the subject, moving away from food to architecture. I, I tuned in on one of the lectures you gave, and what struck me was that with the, with you or with the right guidebook, you can read Venice's history through its architecture. Absolutely. And look, it's one of the things I really enjoy doing because the experience of architecture, which was, it is more than just looking at a surface, it's experiencing a structure in space is not something that you can reproduce very easily on television uh, or on a YouTube video uh, or in a lecture um, for that matter. So I absolutely love showing people architecture uh, in this way. But Venice's architecture 
spans, you know, um, six, seven, eight centuries really from the, from the earliest structures that we can see that survive, um, right through to some stunning, um, contemporary works. And you can see by the location and the style of those, you can actually read the history of the city. So, you know, one of the earliest distinctive styles, for example, is the Veneto Byzantine style, for example, which comes from a period in the 11th and the 12th century when Venice was modeling itself entirely on Constantinople. It wasn't, it wasn't looking to the West. Um, there was not much happening in the West. Florence had not become a great city of, of the Renaissance or anything like that. So, so, you know, those models reflect and then and then you see the Venetian adaptation of what's sometimes called a Gothic style, but that's completely wrong as a word. You know, the Gothic style, as you think about it, um, say English Gothic derives from France, but the Venetian Gothic style is an Oriental um, style. Um, it's you know full of screens and curls and curves and, 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 and things like that. And this again, you know, timing wise is from the thirteenth, uh, fourteenth, uh, and fifteenth century um, of, of, of Venice's history, and it reflects reflects absolutely um, a point uh, in Venice's history, which is still looking to the east. Whereas we move forward to the um, 1400s, the Ottoman conquest of um, Constantinople and the decline of, of the Venetian trading empire in the east. Venice looks to the land, it acquires a land empire, and it also acquires the Renaissance style. So then we see, you know, in this, in this procession of styles, we see a much more classical style come in, but it's a classical style that's always got a local Venetian twist. So, you know, the Venetian Renaissance style is, is quite different in, in, in a number of ways from other, um, styles. I mean, for one, it's on, it's on a, on a canal, um, on an island. It's not, it's not a land-based city. So that setting alone makes it very, very different and, and so on and so forth with the Baroque. Uh, and, you know, the, one of the glories of Venice, of course, this has continued through the various biennales, the Biennale of Art and the Biennale of Architecture, which is running this year. And Venice is still um, experimenting uh, in, in, in new styles. Near the railway station, there's a bridge by Santiago Calatrava, the great uh, contemporary um, Spanish architect. It's very controversial, but it's yet another um, chapter in, in Venice's architectural story. And the architecture and that span of things you're talking about is a very good reason to go to Venice with your eyes open because it's not only the history, it's about how Venice has negotiated its history into contemporary times. Yes, I, I, I think I call it, you know, when I'm, again, I'm giving an overview to people of various periods in its history. You know, um, in, in the 19th century, at the time of the French Revolution, the, the French were very keen to show that Venice was on the way out, that it was decadent. And, you know, if you think that, you know, this continues right through. If you think about films like uh, Death in Venice, um, it uses the city as a metaphor for decay. And, uh, you know, our post-romantic sensibility still loves sort of crumbling buildings. And there are lots of crumbling buildings in Venice. But one of the beauties about Venice is that it actually didn't stop and doesn't stop. It has a, you know, a very strong contemporary scene. The Biennale, of course, is the world's largest contemporary art fair is but one of those focal points. It's the most recognized of them. But, you know, it, this continues, um, in, in so many ways. And, and, you know, this is this Venetian 
love of innovation and technology. This is what made them such great merchants in times past. But there's there's this curiosity uh, about the world, and this can include things like contemporary art and contemporary music and and architecture and things like that. Which means that the city doesn't stay still. It's not it's not a museum. You can see it as a museum. You can pretend you're living in the 16th, 17th, or 18th century, but uh, you you're missing out on a good part of the city if you if you if your historical imagination is, is just limited to those past times. Tell me, what are your favourite places in Venice? I really love um, the area that's not at San Marco is lovely very early in the morning or late at night the the, the square with the magnificent array of, of public buildings really unrivaled I think um, certainly to my mind in, uh, in in a European city but I really love strolling some of the quieter uh, canals now I'm lucky uh, enough my partner and I bought uh, an apartment uh, in Venice uh, just before COVID in 2019 um, but I've you know, been able to spend a lot of time there, and, and there's nothing better than going to say some of the really, really quiet areas of the city near Dorso Duro or right out Santa Elena, which is the island just out before you get to the Lido, uh, and just wandering around some of those quiet canals on on an afternoon, late in the afternoon, uh, you'll see a few people getting about their business. You know, a few people messing around in boats, but you just get these endlessly to my mind, in my eye anyway, beautiful vistas. They may not be anything particular. They may not be anything especially famous, but it's just simply the ensemble of waterways, the odd garden, um, perhaps a parish church, um, a beautiful bridge, an unexpected corner, um, maybe some plant life or, you know, some nice trees and things like that, that, uh, you know, just just constantly beautiful and, and, and surprising. It's ne- no angle is the same. You know, you, you turn a corner and, and things look completely different so you know when I'm not leading a group and and, uh, going on about art and architecture and and history and things like that that's one of my favorite um, my favorite pleasures I have to say and there's always that wonderful light that that you get in Venice that's due to the water that extraordinary light absolutely and it gives things a kind of theatrical property they're like footlights you know it's the water the sunlight reflecting off the water and lighting buildings from underneath and again sometimes it can be quite a wintry um period you know and, and and you know but if the if the sun is shining it will bounce off you know you you, you might be sort of in a sort of very gray area and then you turn into a canal that's just in the line of the sunlight and all of a sudden you're in this brilliant um reflected uh winter light that's just that's just uh, that's just glorious um uh, and uh, and yeah as you say it's a very limpid uh, light, very clear, and, uh, you know, the water, sometimes the stillness of the water really accentuates that effect. That's right. There's also, of course, the pleasure of taking a little boat to one of the other islands, to Murano or Burano. Absolutely. Um, and uh, unfortunately, some of these places have been discovered. So um, Murano, uh, particularly the glass-making island, is you know sadly overrun and, and hard uh, to enjoy it. But um, and, and um, similarly with Burano, but a little further out is the island of Torcello, which used to be the Emporian uh, or the, the, the Byzantine um, sort of trading um, island, uh, if you like. Um, the, if, as long as you don't visit on a sort of crowded weekend, that is 
is beautiful, but there are other places uh, such as the island of San Lazzaro uh, where you need to book on a tour. This is uh, occupied uh, by Armenian monks who came to Venice in the 18th century. They were invited uh, to settle on the island. They were being persecuted uh, by the Turks at the time. Or there's the monastery island of San Francesco, which you have to get to by private boat uh, from the island of Burano. Or indeed, there's the vegetable growing island of Santa Erasmo, uh, where there's nothing much in particular, um, but you can hire a bicycle and uh, and find yourself cycling through um, you know fields of asparagus and things like that. It's a, it's a very unexpected experience. It's very unexpected. Now, Torcello is the island with the extraordinary church and the mosaics. Uh, or have I it's, got that wrong? it's absolutely no. You're absolutely right, and and what a way to come in contact um, with Byzantium and the Byzantine world. You know, it's such an elusive thing, Byzantine history, because you know Constantinople, the great city. And the center, and you know, this is where the emperors of the East uh, lived. Of course, has many chapters in its history. It, it was sacked, uh, then invaded, uh, and uh, then, of course, religion changed uh, there. And so, so you know, the Christian icons. There was even a Christian uh, um, emperor who for, forbade the worship of icons. He was the first iconoclast. Uh, this is back in the eighth century. But if you go to Torcello, what you see is this full blaze of the Byzantine world from the 11th century um, in a church whose history goes back even further than that, whose history goes back uh, to the 7th uh, century. In fact, the inscription in the church in Torcello is the first piece of recorded Venetian history um, rather than just sort of the mythology which characterises the earliest history. There's a document there about um, you know, on, in, in stone on the on the wall there, talking about how the bishop moved uh, the the mainland city to the island in the year six thirty nine. So it's it's historically terrifically important, but absolutely glorious eleventh um, um, century mosaics. I think we might have to finish soon, but we, we I think what you've been saying is that the rule for seeing Venice well is to allow plenty of time. Don't don't go for a weekend. If you possibly can, go for a week. Absolutely. And um, don't just follow the guidebook. Follow your nose or perhaps travel, come into contact with a local guide or, you know, an organised tour, something like that, uh, where the person really knows what they're doing and uh, will take you beyond the experience that, say, 85% of visitors have. And... and Get your best walking shoes is my other advice. My gosh, those stones are hard. <laughs> they are very hard. No high heels for anybody. It's not. When, when I see people, there might be some government function or something at La Fenice Theatre, and I see uh, women in, in high heel shoes, I'm just amazed. I don't know why they're not in hospital. <laughs> or why they're not acrobats. Yeah, well, indeed. <laughs> Robert, thank you so much for this talk about Venice. My pleasure, Rita. Thank you very much. Rita Ehrlich there, speaking with tour guide Robert Veal of Limelight Arts Travel. This is the Travel Writer Show on J Air 88 FM in Melbourne.